welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and The Crop Tech Show and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. It's a topic we've covered widely on the podcast before, but we're always finding new angles and fertiliser prices are continuing to challenge us. So today we're going to keep the focus on crop nutrition. In this episode, we're going to look at utilising organic nitrogen sources and how permanent clover understories are helping one farmer to reduce his nitrogen requirements. We're going to get an update on the farming rules for water policy for muck spreading, which has left some of us a bit bewildered in the last year. But first off, to get a handle on what's currently going on in the fertiliser markets, I'm very pleased to have Potash Markets Analyst Humphrey Knight from CRU with me. So Humphrey, I heard you speak at the ICL conference and you just gave a really good overview of what's influencing everything that's going on at the moment. I'm sure that most of our listeners are all too aware of what's happened with nitrogen prices last season and them hitting record highs. But would you mind just giving us um, a brief background on kind of how we got to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Essentially... It's important to note we rewind a couple of years to start with. If we look back at 2020, most fertilizer prices across um, nitrogen, phosphate, and, and potash um, were in many cases at the decade lows, ultimately. And what this meant is that um, fertilizers were very affordable. Essentially, they were they were very cheap, and particularly when you compare them to what was happening with, with crop prices at the time. The reality, of course, is what happened is that farmers uh, took full advantage of this. So consumers globally um, raised uh, purchasing levels to uh, pretty much all-time record highs, again, across nitrogen, phosphate, and especially uh, potash markets. And this initially began to to tighten um, supply uh, across the fertilizer industry. That, in turn, um, led to prices um, beginning to rise. And this occurred kind of in late 2020 and throughout much of uh, last year as well. What then happened, of course, is that um, we started moving away from, from tight supply to disrupted supply. And, and this came from kind of two two main um, sources, one being that uh, China, which is a significant exporter of nitrogen, especially phosphate, um, began to restrict um, exports of, of both types of fertilizer. And then in the potash space, we had a different situation, which was um, growing concerns around supply from from Belarus, which is the the, the industry's second largest um, export. And this this stems from um, tightening Western sanctions uh, against the country's economy. And this essentially, by the time we we finally came round to to the turn of the year, we had, in many cases, fertilizer prices at three times the levels they were in, in 2020. What's happened more recently, as you point out, is we had some um, really extreme events. That situation around disrupted supply became really very severe when uh, when Russia initiated its invasion against Ukraine, with many fertilizer prices uh, spiking as a result of the major concerns of very severe disruption to supply, not just from Russia, but also elsewhere as well. And ultimately, in many, in, in some cases, we saw fertilizer prices um, touching all-time record highs in some cases. So that, that's kind of how we ended up in the situation a few months ago. Prices have since begun to, on the whole, 
fall back. Although as I speak to you today, there is some some uh, there are some different and some varied drivers of fertilizer prices across the different nutrients. And we thought um, prices were fairly horrendous last year, but would it be fair to say that we're in for a potentially even rougher ride this year? It's difficult, for, and this is why I sort of highlight that it's um, we have very kind of variable uh, drivers of price currently in in, in the nitrogen um, uh, market. Obviously, the big talking point is around natural gas prices. Essentially, this is the main cost input for for, for most nitrogen fertilisers. With um, uh, Russia's continued restriction of gas supplies to Europe, not not only is this pushing costs um, to very extreme levels, but also as a result, many um, producers across Europe, in in most cases, um, cannot produce nitrogen fertilizers economically and so being forced to temporarily halt production. This is just exacerbating the situation. So there is an an, an ongoing um, risk with uh, nitrogen prices that they could remain exceptionally high. Whether they will necessarily um, surpass the peaks we've already seen earlier this year, that's difficult to say. I think ultimately the view that we have at CIU is that that's probably unlikely. However, they are almost certainly going to remain at very elevated levels, particularly when compared to um, historical norms. So there's certainly quite a way to go in terms of high nitrogen fertilizer prices over the coming months. With the other two major nutrients, so uh, for phosphate and potash, things are a little bit different. Uh, certainly for phosphate, there is the element of, of, of higher ammonia cost because that's a constituent part of, of most phosphate fertilizers. But ultimately, things like uh, phosphate rock, sulfur inputs um, are significantly cheaper. And ultimately, we also have a situation where um, demand for phosphate and potash fertilizers is quite significantly uh, weaker this year than it has been over the last couple of years. So this is ultimately helping prices to begin to ease off in some of the most extreme cases, so potash being generally the one that's seen some some real swings. Um, We have now in some markets in potash, we have prices down about a third from their peaks earlier this year. This is, again, just because we have weaker demand, supply not as bad um, as originally expected. And, of course, we, we don't really have that element of major issues around um, cost inflation that we are seeing in, in the nitrogen industry. So, basically, we have a set of very a very mixed signals across the um, fertilizer industry at the moment. And, essentially, we see some kind of... Um, variation in their price movements over the coming months. Okay, and with the weaker demand that bringing down prices, if prices are lower, is that going to then increase demand though and push prices back up? It it could potentially do that. Um, However, I think it's important to note that even today, um, most fertiliser prices, uh, again, across the different nutrients are substantially higher than they were even 24 months ago. I mean, in, in many cases, we have prices at two or three times the level they were only a couple of years ago. When you look at that relative to what, where crop prices are, crop prices are undeniably still high. But it's important to note that if we go back a couple of years, crop prices are, in some cases, maybe 
perhaps 50%, maybe double at most what they were a couple of years ago. Most fertilizer prices are still sometimes double or treble what they were um, a, a few years ago. And ultimately, we, we need to see a, a much um, more significant decline in fertilizer prices to stimulate um, a, a substantial rebound in terms of um, demand. And we would sort of describe this as a kind of affordability-led um, demand driver. And I think ultimately at the moment and what we see over the coming months is we're not of the view that we're going to be in a position where fertilizer prices are, are basically able to fall to a level um, that would encourage that kind of behavior. And, and I mean, you might see some localized cases, that that's absolutely possible. But I mean, in terms of what might actually kind of move the industry, we need to see something like that occurring globally. And ultimately, we think those conditions appear unlikely to return for some time. And there were concerns earlier in the year um, with sulfur supply following the closures of CF fertilisers. Um, I just wondered if you could tell us kind of what's happening with sulfur at the moment and what the outlook is there. Uh, I'm personally not a sulfur expert. Uh, my, my background is, is in potash. However, um, sulfur has got a very different um, situation in as much as... Um, because it's a byproduct as well, rather than most of the others which, which are not. Um, prices for um, elemental sulfur have declined substantially over the past uh, month or so. And so ultimately, we, we're not expecting a return to very high, very elevated prices that we've seen recently over the last year or so in the sulfur markets. And so we think that generally it, it appears the, um, the situation of very elevate, elevated prices in sulfur markets appears to, have, appears to have passed for now. So that will bring that down. It's important to note um, this is it, sulfur is it's a difficult market to kind of track in terms of its importance as, as a nutrient. I'm talking here about its elemental price, and that's most important for things like phosphates. And what that means for phosphates, of course, is that their cost um, inflation is significantly reduced. So that appears to be a somewhat different situation in the sulfur markets compared to the other three nutrients. Right, okay. And then, um, as you said earlier, you know, in, in 2020, prices were incredibly cheap. Do you think that we'll ever get back to that place or are the kind of days of very cheap inputs gone for farmers, do you think? It's difficult to say for sure. Um, it depends on the nutrients. Certainly, it, it appears that we are in a situation where elevated costs, so production costs, could be around for a substantial amount of time. And I mean, years, basically. So for things like uh, natural gas and some other raw materials, th these, these could remain quite elevated compared to historical levels. For, but that's not true across the entire space. So for things like potash, which don't tend to suffer as much in terms of cost inflation, we still have a, a very substantial volume of new capacity and new supplies that to enter the market. And ultimately, we do expect a return of some supply pressure in that market. That may also occur in some of the others as well, you know, because not all parts of the world are necessarily subject to such intense levels of, of cost inflation, for example, North America as, as, a, as a case in point. So there is still plenty of scope for prices to fall to significantly lower levels than they are today. However, um, it's important to note that in some parts of the world, this may prove difficult uh, to overcome. It may, may take quite some time for it to do so. So it's a tricky situation to predict. Um, and as I say, it is there are very different and um, 
variable inputs across the different nutrients. So it can be quite hard to gauge exactly where the industry is going in terms of pricing. However, what I would also just point out, um, it's unlikely we will see prices that we've witnessed over the past year becoming the norm. This is an abnormal situation that we find ourselves in across the industry. You know, gas prices in Europe are 20 times normal levels. Ultimately, it appears to us you know, unlikely that something of this nature would be sustained for a very prolonged period. And I mean, you know, talking five, ten years. We, we, we take the view that it's an unlikely situation. So we do expect prices to continue to fall. The question is, how quickly do they fall and where do they eventually fall to? And this is a little hard to gauge, given we have some, some very um, sort of variable drivers across the nutrients. Yeah. And I guess the the you know the drivers that are influencing the prices um, are I mean things like Russia and Ukraine we don't really know what's going to happen there so it's kind of a level of uncertainty really that could kind of change very quickly. Precisely, this is the thing that's certainly been um, in the last sort of year or so. This is what has pushed some or many fertilizer prices to such extraordinary levels. It was that keyword uncertainty. There was major uncertainty towards the end of last year and in the first part of this year, particularly because of Russia's invasion to Ukraine, that there would be uh, one, sufficient raw materials to make fertilizers and things like natural gas, for example, but also whether there would be simply enough supply of the fertilizers themselves um, to, to most downstream markets. In the most extreme example, in potash, we had a situation where 40% of all global uh, potassium chloride supply was at major risk of being essentially um, halted. So as you can see, this is why you know prices went through some really extraordinary moves um, earlier this year, especially when Russia invaded Ukraine. That said, going forward, uh, barring some, some very unusual and unforeseeable events, um, it, it appears you know, unlikely that we would see a repeat of such you know, incredible swings in price, particularly when we have um, demand across most of the world easing off as a result of these high prices. It just appears unlikely we would see something like that repeating itself in the, in the sort of near future. So it does appear, as, though, as I mentioned earlier, that we're going to see prices continuing to cool, continuing to soften on the whole. There will be some... Um, perturbations along the way, particularly in the nitrogen market. But as I say, the question, as you sort of pointed out earlier, is how quickly do we get to lower levels and what are those lower levels? Are they significantly higher than they were previously? It's, as I say, it's difficult to say for sure as, across fertilizers as, as, as a whole industry because the different nutrients certainly have some very different indicators pointing to, to where their future prices might go. So it, it, it's very difficult to say at this stage. Yeah, okay. That's brilliant. Thank you. Now, reducing the amount of bagged nitrogen being used or even moving away from it completely is an ambition that a lot of farmers have, particularly given everything Humphrey just said about prices. So my next guest on today's episode is going to talk us through his experiences with clover understories or living mulches as they're also known he's growing them both organically and conventionally as part of an innovative farmers group project so i'm very pleased to welcome onto today's episode oxfordshire farmer james alexander you've obviously been dabbling with clover understories for a few seasons um and i'm kind of keen to find out how you're getting on um 
So maybe we could just start with like a bit of background on your farm and why you wanted to give um, living mulches or clover understories a go in the first place. Um, why do we want to? So, yeah, so we've got um, 800 acres of organic and we've got 900 acres of conventional contract farming that we do. So all our conventional grounds direct drilled and has been for nearly 20 years now. So I... I probably really got interested with the living mulches on the conventional farms first because of the nitrogen price and the way all that was going, and the lack of chemicals, really, or the, or the chemicals we keep losing. Um, but because we, we, want, we wanted to do it on the conventional because we could see what clover could do on the organic, see what I mean? So we were, you know, we learn a lot from both systems and try and do the good bits on both. Um, so yeah, we we started on the conventional, and then it was actually the soil association and their uh, innovative farmers field labs. They wanted to do an organic trial as well, um, which we I was happy to do because actually, when you think about it from an organic perspective, if you can keep a permanent understory of clover you've got a permanent source of nitrogen so you're where in our rotation we have two years of red clover generally where we're so we're we're building fertility and nitrogen but we're losing crop production yeah so if you could if we can make a living mulch understory whatever you want to call it work organically and say di- and, and direct drill into that every year you're you've got a permanent rotation going on in my head, anyway, yeah. that's how I, I. Well, that's how I hoped it would work. Uh, <laughs> <should> we, <laughs> that was that was my dream. So yeah, we we put what did we put we put a fielding organically three years ago. It's had two crops off of it. The winter, so they've both been oats. One winter oat, one spring oat. The winter oats established very well. We just direct drilled them into the living mulch looked good living mulch was sat there very happily underneath didn't compete with the or didn't seem to compete with the crop and there was definitely no issue with height of clover in the bottom when we get towards harvest and even we had some drone photos of it and the living mulch plot was much darker green than the rest of the field which was done our normal way of plowing and cultivation and drilling and all the scientists that came and did all the measuring and things all in it were you know there was less weeds everything was looking as if you know that's this is the way to go until we put the combine in it and we had a ton to the acre yield loss on the living mulch trial so i came at it that i didn't want to disturb the clover at all which is what we do on our conventional farms um, when we're direct drilling we i you know, we don't disturb the soil at all um so that was where I was coming from with the, on the organic. But what we think is we had, there was probably, the clover was obviously competing for moisture and things. Um, and also it's finding the way of stressing the clover in the crop to release its nitrogen. Yeah, because that's something that people don't necessarily realise is that for the clover to release nitrogen it has to kind of go through a process doesn't it yeah you have have to attack it basically you have to stress it um so every time we cut a red clover field we release nitrogen that's why i always grow rye grass in with my red clover because then you've got something else to capture the 
nitrogen that you're releasing through the over the two years. So yeah, we so then so we, we sort of worked that out and went well okay then next year we've got to do something a bit different on the organic. Um, so it was going into spring oaks this time, which we didn't see a problem with. We drilled the spring oaks this spring. They germinated, they established, and then it didn't rain. Uh, and then the clover took all the moisture, and the whole field went brown. So that, yeah, if then you go, well, if we're going to start having more hot summers or more dry spells like we've had this year, actually is a living mulch going to work in, a, in an organic situation? Conventionally, we haven't seen a problem. We've established lays. Um, we've dry drilled into them three or four times now. Um, but the thing, the difference in conventional is we can stunt, the, or not stunt, we can stress the clover with chemicals yeah. and not kill it. So you can knock it back because white clover, you can actually spray with up to four litres a hectare of glyphosate and it won't kill it. Yeah. But you'll you're stress it and stunt, push it back enough that you can establish a crop and it will release any nitrogen it's got. So that works. Um, whereas organically, I mean, we didn't actually do it this year because we didn't have a crop to do it in because it was so dry, but we were going to look at harrowing or rolling the clover a couple of times, um, like rolling before, you know, we got stem elongation on the, on the oats. Um, and maybe running a weeder harrow through it a bit later on to try and stress the clover. Um, but the Great British Summer got in the way this year. As it always <laughs> does. <laughs> yeah, it's either too well too dry. Yeah. <laughs> so um, with the organic clover, say after harvest, mm-hmm. what do you, do you graze it or anything like that before you would establish the next crop into it? Uh, yeah, well, what we because so we we actually had a what did we have a four hectare plot in a in a eight hectare field um, was part was a trial bit. Um, I think if it was a whole field in a whole block, yes, we'd run the sheep over it. Um, what we did last autumn because actually as soon as we took the oats off last autumn, the clover was there. It got some daylight and it was happy as anything. Mm. Um, we knocked it back in the in sort of September, mid, mid to late September last year with a topper, um, a big mechanical sheep really. Yeah. Um, uh, and it came away into the winter very nicely and, it, and kept a good ground cover, which was a, my key, is my key thing, you know, we want to keep the weeds out. Um, but, and then like I say, we drilled it in the spring and it was fine, but then I think from mid to late May we started to not have any rain yeah Um, and definitely June, July and August we didn't have any rain Um, so yeah it just it it all gave up Um, and I think because actually the clover kept going longer than the oats um, they were obviously getting all the moisture because it was an established crop Um, so yeah like I say we learned from our mistakes well not that it wasn't a mistake it was what happened yeah and um, when you initially establish um the clover understory like the first time that you established it um what's what gap do you leave between that and drilling the crop well we actually what we found is um unless you can establish it in say june july in a fallow field say if you've got a field that's fallow um, you're actually better to establish it in the spring. Okay. Uh, um, 
it likes warm, moist, very growy conditions. So I, I'd say if somebody's trying to do, look at doing it, I'd look at establishing it in sort of May time and spread. We we established what the bits we've done. We've actually established in a spring barley crop. Um, before the spring barley really gets going, we go back through with our horse drill and just sprinkle the um, clover seed on the surface, harrow it in, and roll it. Okay. Because uh, it really only just wants to be on the surface, and then ideally do it just before you get a load of rain. Yeah. Um, and it's away. But yeah, unless I wouldn't be like wanting to establish it now, um, sort of anything after mid August, I'd forget about really. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, so into spring barley or or in a sort of June time, if you've got some fallow, that, you know, June, June July. Uh, uh, you know, the seed is expensive. It, I, my conscious thing is always it's, you know, there's costs involved if we can limit the risk and stuff. And, and you know, it, it makes everything a bit better. Yeah, definitely. And what type of clover are you growing? It's Re- white clover, isn't it? The, yeah, white clover. The, the variety, and this isn't from what I found. This is what I found from other people that have been doing it. Is is it? I think it's Rivendale. Rivendale, I think, is the or Rivendale is the variety that most people have found has been sort of the best low-growing small leaf white clover. Is that, um, is that like a micro clover or is that a different? It, no, micro clovers. I I got it, I discovered micro clover on the internet and got all excited about it. <laughs> and thought this is this is definitely what we need. Um, I haven't tried any yet. I, I still want to. Uh, one thing I learned early on when I was reading up about it is once you've got micro clover, it's almost impossible to get rid of. Okay. Um, so which, in an organic system, that could be. Conventionally, you could go, well, we can control it. It would probably be a problem. But organically, if it wasn't, if it, it got out, I don't know if it would get out of hand, but, you know, if it, if, it, if we couldn't control it, we, we, you know, we could do ourselves a bit of a problem, um, you know, from, from just not thinking. Um, so, no, we, we've gone for this small leaf white clover, um, which does cover very, it's very prostate over the ground. It doesn't really grow very tall at all. You'd hardly notice it. You know, it does, when you take the crop off, it doesn't suddenly become eight inches tall. It probably gets no more than four or five inches tall okay. um, when it's really growing, which, you know, when you're growing it in a short barley, spring barley crop, you know, that's just right for cutting above it. Yeah. And in terms of results, have you been able to measure whether the clover has given you, you know, more nitrogen to utilise? Uh, well, yeah. No, because being a farmer, I haven't got that in depth. Um, but we have cut back our nitrogen a lot on the fields where um, where we've been growing it and the yields have been the same as the rest of the farm. So, yes, it is giving us nitrogen. I think I've spoken to a few people that we can, we will do some work this year, but it's it's no one really knows how and when, if you see what I mean. You can you can go and stress it, but you know some people say if you stress clover, it's up to three or four weeks before it's available. So there's all different lines of thought of when the nitrogen's available in the crop. Yeah. 
so it's almost well, another aside from this. We uh, well off the back of the clover, we are also trialling some in-field um, soil testing equipment. So we get constant feed um, measurements back to our phones. Um, so we, I think next year that'll move. That's been on the organic farm. That's going to move up to conventional farms. So we can, like you know, you can see. It might be that when we apply our fungicides at T1, we get some response from the clover. We don't, you know, but these that equipment will help us with that. Yeah, I guess it's all the unknowns, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, it, and it's, it, uh, you know, most of this work is coming from us farmers doing it off our backs, not necessarily some of industry where they've got the money and the resources and all the testing for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, you know... I think, I think with a lot of these things at the moment, we're, farmers are ahead of the researchers, really. Yeah. Um, so, which, you know, there is more on farm testing these days, isn't there? Because cause we're all doing it. Yeah, just need someone to fund it. <laughs> yeah, it's money. It's always about money. <laughs> exactly. Um, and when you say you were able to um, reduce your nitrogen applications by a bit, how much uh, is a bit? So, our... Uh, um, I'm just trying to think of different farms, different soil, different amounts. But our sort of norm is around the two. We, we mainly only grow feed wheat. So if you're looking at a wheat crop, feed wheat, around the 200 to 10 kilos of N. Um, we're back down to about 160 kilos of N now, or we were for this year. Um, and we had, we've had we had an average of around 10 and a half tons to the hectare of wheat this year um, which for around us on the Cotswolds is very good yeah because we haven't really got any soil um, so yeah we're normally looking at an eight or a nine ton yield this year we've been doing ten and a half on on our some of our farms that are a bit better soil we've been up to eleven and a half twelve um, so yeah that's we, we've seen some big improvements by cutting fertilizer back excellent um, which I'm not going to say we're going to carry that on. You know, it might not replicate next year because it's all to do with the weather as well, isn't it? So. Yeah. Well, it's still quite a quite a decent nitrogen saving, though, isn't it? Oh, massive! I got, I got. We've got two liquid. We're all liquid fertilizer. I've got two liquid fertilizer tanks, and one of them's still full. <laughs> so um, we're not going to need to buy so much this year, which is quite nice to see the price. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if we can carry on cutting, well, I'm not. I don't know. We might better cut back a bit more. I don't see why we can't. We'll definitely try some tram lines this year. We will cut back back a bit more and see how far we can go. Um, so, um, yeah, it's all about trying and then spending 10 months waiting for the results. <laughs> That's the frustrating part. <laughs> and then it being a completely different result the next season. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't go rushing into doing anything just, just off the back of one year, but um, we, we keep trying. Yeah. So in your organic system, do you think that this could be a way for you to move to, you know, a kind of less cultivation heavy approach? Yeah, I think from from looking at what we've done, so the, the few of us in the Innovative Farmers trials, we're all using different drills to establish. And actually, it came because that's what we had available. Mm. Um the guys that were doing a bit more of a strip-till idea, so they were actually made... Uh, one guy, I think, was actually actually doing proper strip-till, so he was cultivating a three- or four-inch band and then planting into pure soil, but he had clover in between. Um, 
I think organically that might be the way to go because you're giving the crop its own bit of soil to live in, if you see what I mean. But you've got the clover either side. Um, and also that gate you because you might be on slightly wider rows, you might be, we might be able to find a mechanical way of um, stressing the clover. Yeah. Um, I have seen there is floating around the country a inter-row mower um, mm. where you can actually go and mow in a standing crop the rows of clover. Um, I'm yet to see it in the flesh, but yeah, the, 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 the technologies, again, the farmers are ahead of the researchers and we're sort of ahead of the technology. We're demanding new technology to make work what we're trying to make work on farm now, I think. Yeah, I know what you mean. And um, are you under countryside stewardship? Because there's some payments available, isn't there, for kind of under-sown cereals? Well, which yeah, matter. organically, you, I don't think organically we gain them because we have to grow clover. Oh, right. Uh, it's a bit, I, I know, when we... When the new stewardship came out, I was like, "Oh, amazing! We got, you know, we have, to, we normally got, we've normally got around sixty hectares, seventy hectares of clover in the ground." And I thought, "Wow, we're quits in here." Yeah. But no, instantly they go, "Well, you know, you have to do that for your, <laughs> that's your rotation. We're not, we're not going to pay you for that." Um, but no, I think eventually, um, I've got two farms that are coming up for renewal soon on stewardship so it'll be interesting to see what we can do down that route really yeah um, it, uh, the SFI money is you know that's easy game for us conventionally because um, we're all direct drilled and we've been doing it all for many years already really yeah um, so you know it'd be interesting to see what we can gain from this extra stewardship really by, by using this method yeah and for any farmers thinking that they might want to give this a go, what advice would you have for them? Uh, plant it in the right conditions and be prepared to wait for, you know, if you can't get it in in the spring, wait until the summer. And if you can't get it in the summer, wait, because I think, you know, it, if you get a patchy clover crop in the bottom, you're sort of not, it, it's not going to work because you want it there to cover the ground, keep the weeds down and you know be a complete cover on the soil surface all the time um so yeah we like we were supposed to put in another block of conventional land that was fallowed because the linseed failed this year so we said right it's a good opportunity this july we'll get the clover in but because it's never rained until now we haven't done now we're too late so we're going to leave it till the spring um so i yeah be patient and, and make it work is, would be my biggest thing really we, we just get the clover established um, uh, and other than that I talk to everybody else that's doing it really and learn from what we've done um, yeah there's, there's, there's quite a few people around the place now doing it or, or at least got some on their farm anyway somewhere yeah I've seen a fair few people on Twitter kind of dabbling mm. with it but yeah. a lot of people seem to the establishment issue seems to be you know the main hurdle to get over yeah yeah i I think it is um i think one year we had a bit of a failure in some conventional because it was probably a bit of residual herbicide left over um maybe we're not sure it might have been down to the weather again that we didn't get the rain when we were thought but um we should we established some and it was fine and the only thing that we could find different was a, a maybe in the past some residual herbicide um so that's worth keep making a note of um, but yeah, no, it, it is the establishments. To, it, 
yeah, it, to me, if you're not going to get, if it's not going to establish well, you're not you're not starting off on the right foot, really, because the whole idea is you have a complete cover um, over the whole field. Yeah. Um, but but when you do get it established right, you don't get the weeds. That's mm. you know, that's the thing. And and you you know you can still take some broadleafs out in it, and you can definitely take some grass weeds out in it. So uh, yeah, it does. It opens up a another sort of dimension to to what you can and can't do. Yeah. So you treat it more as a crop when you're. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely look after it. It's not. It's you know. It's not just to throw it on and and that'll do. And hope for the best. Yeah. No. It's got to be managed. Okay, excellent. Thank you. That's really interesting. And finally, getting the most we can from organic manures such as FYM will be top priority for some growers' crop nutrition strategies. And earlier this year, DEFRA issued new guidance on muck spreading rules under the farming rules for water. So to talk us through what the clarification to those rules mean in practice is Ian Ludgate, NFU National Water Quality and Ammonia Advisor. Ian, I just wanted to start by looking at the background of why this um, clarification for farming rules for water kind of happened in the first place. So um, since the farming rules for water were or came into force in 2018, um, it became clear uh, in the following years that the Environment Agency was... uh, taking a certain position on part of the regulations known as Rule 1 or Regulation 4. And basically, um, that regulation requires farmers to plan applications of manures and fertilisers so they do not exceed the needs of the soil and the crop um, or uh, lead to a significant risk of pollution. Now, uh, the Environment Agency interpreted um, the first part of that, um, the need to not exceed soil and crop need, um, to mean that if farmers were applying manures in the autumn, um, then the nitrogen content of those manures could not exceed the very immediate need of the crop. uh, And that need was being the, the need was being pointed to was that set out in RB209, um, which we all know is, is the guidance for fertilisers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, this effectively, um, that approach would effectively mean that uh, many applications of manures in the autumn uh, that are currently practised uh, on many crops, um, excluding things like OSR, um, or some grass where RB209 says there is a legitimate requirement for nitrogen fertilizer um, in the autumn. Um, apart from those two crops, um, then most applications would uh, apparently fall short of, of the regulations. So we were looking at um, effectively a widespread ban on applying, applying manures in the autumn for, for things like winter cereals. Yeah, and and all of this caused a great deal of confusion. So what happened since that announcement? I know there's been a fair bit of toing and froing. Um, the NFU have obviously been campaigning. Yeah, so this all came to uh, a head um, in 
summer of last year um, when the EA's position became quite well known. Um, but uh, it, was, it was also quite a confusing uh, position for, for many farmers who are sort of used to assessing a crop need for soil and crop need for nitrogen over the over the duration of a, of a crop cycle um, rather than uh, immediately in the autumn time um, and with all the sort of wider environmental benefits that applying manures bring in the autumn um, and considering it was such a widespread practice um, it came as a bit of a surprise to many um, so yeah following that uh, there was a lot of um, back and forth, well, continued back and forth for us with um, the Environment Agency and, and DEFRA and working with um, quite a few different industry partners. Um, we, uh, we managed to, well, uh, make them see sense in a way. And um, uh, following that came the uh, clarification guidance on, on Rule 1 and applying awesome manures that came out in March uh, this year. Okay, and what exactly does that say now? Because I think, am I right in thinking it, there were slight changes made to it more recently as well? Maybe was it in July? So yeah, you are. Do right. you know what the 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 rules are now, and also whether you think that they're likely to change in the future? Again. Um, so yeah, the, the the guidance that was published in March. Uh, this year by DEFRA uh, basically um, directs the Environment Agency on how to how to enforce uh, Rule 1 or uh, Regulation 4 um, in terms of how farmers should be assessing the need for both nitrogen and phosphate um, when it comes to planning applications. So in terms of nitrogen, uh, a farmer can um, uh, plan the nitrogen need over the annual cropping cycle uh, rather than the, the immediate need, as the Environment Agency was sort of saying before. Um, but also in terms of phosphates, um, the guidance says that farmers um, should not be applying uh, phosphates um, where the, the target uh, index has already been reached. Um, now there are a couple of important exceptions in there where farmers are producing um, uh, manures themselves or where they're importing manures and there is no alternative to, uh, to changing that situation, then they can continue to apply those even if the, the index is, is raised above the target. Um, but uh, elsewhere in the guidance, there's also clarification around um, some of the reasonable precautions that a farmer would need to take to avoid uh, significant risk of pollution. And uh, these include things like establishing green cover and rapid incorporation and uh, application rates for high risk uh, manures. Uh, and yeah, I would recommend that farmers have a look at the guidance themselves to uh, get across the detail on those. So, um, I mean, I guess amid such high fertiliser prices as well, we're kind of going to be looking to organic manures even more so than we have done in the past. So do you think anything is likely to change here? Well, um, 
addressing the the um, both the, the environmental and um, the economic benefits of, of manures for for providing nutrients for crops. This was a, a key part of um, a key part of our argument for uh, well against the position. Um, and uh, yeah, amid the, uh, the you know the ongoing fertilizer markets and uh, rises, then uh, this becomes ever more important. Um, with the new guidance that was published in March, um, it does have a clause in there that it could be reviewed at any time, and no later than 2025. So um, yes, this uh, guidance is subject to change. Um, but we, uh, yeah, we hope we can keep the uh, flexibility in there for as for as long as possible. Yeah, I guess it would be unlikely to change for the worse, considering the current climate. I would hope. I would hope. I would hope not. Um, and if uh, you know, if the if the guidance is tightened at some point down the line. Um, then we would hope for a sort of extended transition in a way from where we are now to um, where the environment agency or DEFRA says that we have to be in the future. Uh, so farmers are given the time um, and the support uh, to make uh, that transition. Yeah, because I guess that's one of the things with, um, you know, what, what happened in, initially with farming rules for water is that it was it was quite sudden. Very much, yeah, because, um, you know, as I say, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the industry, uh, farmers uh, interpreted the regulations quite differently to the environment agency. So when the uh, EA's approach became uh, well known, it, it did come as a bit of a, a bit of a shock uh, to many um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the practice of using manures in the autumn is, is widespread um, for very good um, environmental and agronomic uh, reasons. Um, so, uh, yeah, we would, uh, we would not want the kind of change that the, EA was, that the EA was sort of suggesting. That's great. Thank you for giving us that update. And that's it for today's episode, but I've already got started on our next episode, which looks at trading natural capital. And I've got some really great guests on the podcast for that one. And of course, it's nearly November, which means Crop Tech takes place at the East of England showground on the 23rd and 24th of next month. We've got loads of great seminars, zones, exhibitors, and much more lined up this year. And you can register for your free ticket online now at croptechshow.com. And I hope to see you there.